Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of the Law Blacks one-to-one podcast. My name's Chris Allen and I'm the managing partner of Black Solicitors. I've worked in West Yorkshire for over 25 years and during that time I've met some interesting people in both the business world and the sports world. After a short break courtesy of COVID-19, I'm now looking forward to catching up with some more of the people I've met to share with you some of their opinions, advice and stories. As ever, I hope you find these interviews interesting, engaging, and even educational. Now, at this point in the podcast, I usually thank our old friend Pete Bott for allowing us to use one of his pieces of music. Pete runs a band called Deuce and Charger. However, lockdown has provided me with an opportunity to create our own piece of signature music, and you'll have heard a snippet of that at the start of the podcast. At the end of the podcast, we're going to play the whole piece to you. I hope you like it. You're probably going to hear a lot more of it on various formats and platforms. If you do like it, tell a friend. If you don't like it, tell me. I met my guest today whilst attending a sports law conference over in Manchester last year. And what my guest had to say stopped me in my tracks. Daniel Parslow is a former professional footballer who developed as a player at Cardiff City and has represented Cheltenham, Grimsby, and in particular York City in a professional career where he played over 400 games and represented Wales at under-17, under-19s and under-21s. Now, those statistics alone would have guaranteed a Daniel a place on this podcast series, as you can imagine. But it's the manner in which Daniel's career was curtailed by a head injury that caught my ear when we first met. As a result, Daniel has some firm views on head injuries in sport. And since we met, I've been looking forward to speaking to him in more detail so he can share his thoughts on that topic in particular with you. So, uh, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Chris. Really looking forward to having a good chat with you. Yeah, good man. Thank you. So, uh, just give us a little bit of background about that career. It started down in Wales. Daniel, that's where you're from, clearly. But you spent a lot of your sort of professional life up here. Uh, just tell us about how things developed at Cardiff. Were you always a good footballer? Were you always the kid in the class who was going to go a bit further than everybody else? How did, how did that all pan out? And get and take me up to getting signed by York City for the first time. Yes, so I think growing up, I, I loved all sport. Played football, rugby, cricket. Being from South Wales, um, huge rugby, uh, rugby mad area, if you like. So I think my dad, I had a choice actually when I was around... 12 or 13 um to go to a i got offered sort of like a scholarship through cardiff rugby club as it was at the time before they all went to the um the regions if you like at the same time i um i was very much um enjoying my football at cardiff city so came to the ranks of cardiff and football was always my true passion um so yeah i came all the way through the youth set up at Cardiff. I was fortunate to get offered a scholarship at 16. And once I'd um, finished my GCSEs, went into the world of full-time football. Cardiff City at the time were a championship club, doing very well. Um, Lots of big players, um, in particular in my position. So um, I didn't really get um, much of a chance. So um, I was, although I was there for another four years, um, played a lot of reserve team football and... um, and I was then told that I was shown the door. So at 20, I was so keen to um, to stay in football. Uh, I was determined to make a career in football. So um, 
I wrote letters to every single um, football league club and a few conference clubs and um, just asking for an opportunity really. And um, York City sort of, well, they replied through the um, the reserve coach, new um, my coach, if you like, at Cardiff. And then they invited me up for a trial. And then I ended up spending the next nine years at York. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I was so determined. I mean, I mean, the first thing I needed to do, I needed to Google where York was. It was a long way from, from Cardiff. So, um, um, and then I had to just pack a bag and they expected me up for training the next day. I had, I had this call on a Sunday and um, needed to get up there on the Monday morning for training. Wow. And, and if I'd have met you, you know, about that time in your life, Daniel, would you have, I mean, was that a crushing blow when Cardiff said, look, you're surplus to requirements? I mean, obviously you'd been there, man and boy, as it were. Um, how, did you, how did you cope with that? How, and, and, and what was the reaction of people around you? It was, um, it was extremely difficult. I think um, everybody knows how difficult it is to make the grade as a professional footballer. And although I, I was classed as a professional at Cardiff, I signed a... a um, a two-year professional contract I, I was always on the periphery and um, for a little while I think I knew the news was coming as as I wasn't really playing any football I, I wasn't I mean I mean towards the end wasn't really training with the first team either we had Cardiff had that much of a, of a big squad we all, almost had like a reserve squad as well so I knew the writing was on the wall um, but it's hard to sort of admit it and yeah when you get pulled into that office and you say I mean, Dave Jones was a manager at the time. He was very honest. He said that he thinks I will go on to have a career in, in football, but it will not be a championship level. So it was, it was, it was cutthroat, but that's football. Um, and yeah, I was upset. I was disappointed. I was worried about what to do next. Um, and I was very close to actually just going to university because months were ticking by. Um, there was still no sort of opportunities um, forthcoming. And then it was at the 11th hour that this uh, opportunity came about. And I was a lot, a lot of my teammates and friends who, who had similar news to myself, they, they were quite happy just to play semi-pro or go and play for their local team, um, pick up some reasonable money at part-time level and then go and start a career. But I was really, really keen to, to play football. I, I believed I was good enough. So, yeah, I, I was just desperate for that chance, really. And have you bumped into Dave John since? Have you ever come across him at a dinner yes, or anywhere? And, 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 I have. And what, was, what, do you, what, do, what have you said to Dave since and what's he said to you since? He, um, it, was, it was odd. I, I tell you, when I, when I met Dave Jones, we... Um, when, um, when Berry were in a bit of a mess, Paul Wilkinson, who was my reserve coach at Cardiff, he, he got given the job. And this was when there was all sorts of financial difficulties at Berry, and there was talk of them being expelled from the league. And Paul invited me over. He knew I studied sports science and he was keen to get people he knew trusted around him, really. So he wanted to forge um, his own little team. And he invited me and he offered me the sports science role at Berry. And... I'm sat in the cafeteria at Berry, and who walks through the door? Dave Jones. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think Dave was brought in as, a, as an advisor, or he was part of the team who were trying to sort of save or rescue the club. Um, we had an honest chat. He, he, he knew I'd stayed in football. 
he said, obviously, I went on to have a, a pretty su- successful career. And then we, we went on to my head injury. So, um, yeah, and hence, that's how I, I, was, I ended up at Bury, sort of looking at roles, not on the football field, if you like. And, and so, with hindsight, do you, would you say that Dave Jones got it right when he made that call? Because, I mean, he yes. said, you'll have a career, but not at this level, uh, which I suppose you could say, well, that's, that's what transpired. For sure. But, yeah, I think um, I think I would have I would have loved to be given the opportunity. I think if you're thrown in and you're playing around better players, I think a lot of the time you step up and you can prove that you might be able to do it. I think that was my only disappointment from a spell at Cardiff City that I didn't even make a first team appearance. I sat on the bench a few times, but there were some terrific footballers. In, I mean, the likes of James Collins, Danny Gabadon. Spencer Pryor, who just left a Premier League team. I mean, all these play. I mean, James Collins and, and Gabadon went on to play for West Ham for the next 10 years. So um, these players were sort of in my position and um, Cardiff City's job was to win football matches and they had aspirations of getting into the Premier League themselves. So I, I understand that Dave Jones has got a job to do and if he felt as though he needed to, he couldn't bled me or sort of ease me in, then... Um, his job's on the line as well, really. So, and that's that is football. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's definitely uh, tough. It's great when you're in, and not easy when you're when you're out, is it? That's Absolutely. This podcast is, needless to say, sponsored by Black Solicitors. Black is a law firm based in Leeds, and we provide a range of commercial, property, and private client services to clients throughout the United Kingdom. Obviously, I'd love you to enjoy this podcast and then use our services on any legal issues you have going forward. If you visit lawblacks.com, you'll see the kind words that existing clients have had to say about the services we provide. Now, back to the podcast. So you get to York, you welcome to Yorkshire, we go back in time, welcome to Yorkshire. You've arrived in York. You've just about time to sort of dust off and then you're, you're training. How, how did that first training session go? It was brilliant. I was extremely nervous. Um, so this was a taste of proper first team football where points mean mean business and everything was scrapping for win bonuses. And um, I was and I, I was on trial. So it, there was def, I mean, there was no definite contract offer. So at this stage, I was just trying my absolute hardest to to impress and um, at the same time be relaxed because no one performs well when they're all uptight and um, as as I'm sure you know so so yeah but within 10 days I'd I played a couple of friendlies or practice matches trained well and then there was an offer and um, and and is that how long a a trial normally lasts how long does a you know, if, you, if somebody got to trial today at York City, is that is that what? Similar sort of period. I think. It, I think these days. I mean, at the time, I, I had no agent. I mean, if if a player is getting touted around, they might put the pressure on the club to say, "Look, you need to put something on the table because we we're going elsewhere." But I I, I had no other offer. This no. was my one chance. And when the contract offer came about, I was surprised as to how little it, it was. I wasn't on massive money at Cardiff City and I knew York City were, were down the football pyramid, but um, it was, I couldn't afford to live on it. Mm. So I had an honest chat with my mum and dad 
and they said, we'll support you, we'll help you. I, they knew how much I wanted it. So that's what they did. So for yeah. that first year in particular, I was getting financial help um, and I was living the dream. And then the hope was I was, I proved myself, earned my place and then get improved contracts in time. Now, now that time, uh, how old were you then? About I was 20. You were 20. So you've arrived in York, uh, obviously not on a huge amount of money, but, and what's, what's the sort of the, the culture for the professional footballer? I, in my mind's eye, I think, ah, well, you'll train for two or three hours a day. Uh, and then you probably have a sleep. Is it regimented as that? Is the club, was the club as regimented as that? Do they actually say, don't bother going out doing extra running, don't bother going out and getting a hamstring strain, don't, certainly don't bother playing football with some mates yeah. at five a side. Well, you know, what, how, how restricted was your life? It was, it was very regimented. I think um, we had a very, um, I don't know how, how, how best to word it, I mean, Billy McEwen was his name, and he and he knew he was very um, he was very regimented. He he almost played the game for you. He was um, I'd always be grateful for Billy for giving me my opportunity in men's football. Um, but he was so passionate, and he, I think he was he still thought he he could play the game himself. He was kicking every ball on the touchline, heading it, um, shouting and screaming. And yeah, we train hard in the mornings and he was all about getting your rest. So it was a case of morning's work, rest up, ready for the next session the next day, and then making sure we're in peak condition on, um, on, on a Saturday. And over those, and, and you then, I mean, I've got a list here of your appearances there, and it, it looks like you've played something like 260 games for York then. Sort of, uh, I don't, you know, it doesn't look like you missed many at that point. So you were in Heart of Defence, I take it? That's right, yeah. <laughs> And, 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 and talk to me about the relationship with fans then. I mean, obviously, any player who's at a club for that length of time, you, you must have got... Did you get to know some of the fans? Do they, do they... Do you feel they took to you or did they go against you? Did you ever have any... You know, what was that relationship like? I think I... Um, I think they saw I, I wore my heart on my sleeve and I, and I was a trier and I was a doer. I think um, we all make mistakes and um, I made plenty, but I think when, when fans see that you're, you're trying your best for their club, I mean, players come and go, but when they see a player who's giving their all and the excitement and the satisfaction after a victory and, and the disappointment and the heartache after a defeat, I think they, they can relate to that. And um, yeah, I, I quickly formed a good relationship with the fans and having spent so long there, you do get to know a lot of people and how much it means to everybody. And I was fortunate, I mean, in my time, I've, I've won the Clubman of the Year three times, and which is voted for by supporters, and um, the only player in the club's history to, to have won it three times. So it's, um, so it's an honour I'm extremely proud of. Um, in my first spell, I didn't want to leave in the, fir- you know, in the yeah. first place. It was made for me by a, by a manager, and I'd always been able to knuckle down and, and, and impress a, a new manager who came through the door through my work ethic and... And, and quality as well, obviously. I mean, I, I, I'm aware I have ability, but um, there's plenty more who have more ability than, than me. But I think hard work does go a long way, especially the lower down the leagues you go. And what about when I, uh, well, I assume during that nine years there was the odd change of manager at York, because that seems to be the way it goes in football. So, you know, when a newer manager is arriving, what do the players, what do you do when you get together? Do you say, oh, no, it's so and so, he's a stickler? Or do you say, oh, this guy's great, but a bit bit left field or and what do you do do you make an effort to 
talk to them one-to-one or do you just wait for them to come and speak to you? I think um, in a dressing room of 20 professional footballers, they're going to be some who are pleased that the previous managers lost their job as they weren't in the team. There'll be others who will be really disappointed as if, if you were playing regularly and you feel as though you've let him down. So normally a manager will come in and it's, they'll give the, the clean slate talk and everybody gets a fair chance. And yeah, there's whispers, there's rumours as to who's linked with the job and as lads would do, you hear some good stories, you hear bad stories, you hear... But I've always been of the, of the mindset that you give a manager an opportunity, I mean, and not go on anything that you've heard in the past because I, that's how I'd like to be treated anyway. So, yeah, and, and I, I was fortunate for in that nine years that whenever any manager did come through the door, um, they quickly saw what I was about and they'd, most managers had played against me in an opposite dugout, if you like. So I think they're aware of, of people's skills and what they can do and what they can't do. And um, most managers like to sort of introduce themselves and pull players quietly and just get to know them on a more intimate and personal level, just to know how they tick, really. I mean, mm. I've, I've seen managers just treat everybody the same. And it's a recipe for disaster. I mean, you've got 20 different personalities and it's it's management. It's man managed. That's what makes good managers. It's knowing how to how to look after players who needs a rocket, who who needs an arm around the shoulder. It's it is. It's it's, it's tough, and and it's why managers get paid good money because you've got in some cases a lot of egos, but at the same time you've got you've got just different personalities, and you're all thrown together because you're good at football. It doesn't necessarily mean that um, you're all going to get on or. You're all going to. Um, it's all going to be rosy, if you like. And in terms of, uh, did the did the the management or the owners of the club ever come to you? You know, being a you know by the end of that, you were quite a seasoned pro at your. Did they ever come to you for your opinion on a new manager? Did anybody ever take you to one side and say, "Look, we're thinking of signing this person. What do you, you know, what, what, how do you think the team would think of that?" Or was there any, is there that sort of interaction between players and owners? Um, not so much owners. I think Mr. McGill, he's been at York City for such a long time. He was he was more involved during my early years at the football club. He was he'd quite often pop up to the training ground and um towards the end of my of my first spell and in particular when I returned to the club, it it sort of taken a turn for the worst. It'd been obviously York City had slid down the, the football pyramid a little bit and there was some discontent with fans and they they were questioning his decision making and so he he really has taken a bit of a back seat but he's still in charge of the football club and answering your your, um your question there um never did a did directors or owners sort of ask me personally for opinion on on managers whereas managers numerous occasions have asked me for opinion on players you've we played with and against lots of players and I think managers respect and they trust your opinion if you've worked with them for a long time so I think they um they do that quite often and when you went to York obviously that was a, a challenging time for you did did other players make you do you make the lone you know the lone person welcome or do people think hello who's this chap after my job for sure I think when I when I came to York I there were some great lads who made me feel very welcome um and 
I've tried to do the same throughout my York City career. I mean, the, the turnover of players that I saw in my time at York, you'd be into the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, at lower league level, quite often a new manager wants a new set of players. And when players are only on one-year contracts, it's quite easily then to, to forge your own team. So, um, And I've always been at the case where whoever walks through the door, whether it's a centre-back who's sort of gunning for my position or whether it's a centre-forward, it's not their fault that they've come to York City. They want to do well for York City. They want to do well for Cheltenham Town, Grimsby, whoever. So it's never personal. I think we all want to play football. And at the end of the day, it's not the lad who sat next to me in the dressing room's fault if he is playing instead of me. So I've always tried to be have that attitude, which is hard because it's affecting your livelihood. It's affecting your chances of earning a living for the next mm. year if you're out of the team. It's uh, the pressure and worry of knowing if you are going to be able to earn a new deal so but I've tried to I think um be human about it and to be understanding and um yeah I think that's that's sort of the attitude I've always had anyway and when you I mean all through your career then played some games at Grimsby and at Cheltenham um going from one club to another club to another club were they three very different clubs or is it much the same you know is it the same sort of um regime regimented way of training and, and, and preparing or is there, was there any major difference between those three clubs? I've, I've played for, um, so, so the Grimsby move came about as I was recovering from a serious knee injury so I'd, um, I'd been out of the game for 11 months and um, York City were in the League 2 at the time, Grimsby were in the conference so we all thought it'd be a good idea for me to go and get some game time and get up to speed so Grimsby Town, another big well-established football club, passionate fans, and similar of York, really, where rich history and uh, a real football community where uh, if you're not doing well, they'll tell you. <laughs> um, but if things are going great, then they, they're they fantastic. So, yeah, Grimsby, um, I thoroughly enjoyed my spell there. And going back to trying to impress managers. Um, so at York, my contract was running out and a new manager had come through the door and I don't think he really took a shine to me. I don't think I was his sort of player. So he sent me out on loan. He sent me back out on loan to Grimsby. So I've, this was when I think I knew that my spell at York was coming to an end and it was extremely upsetting. Mm-hmm. Being there nine years and I hadn't really had an opportunity to get back out on a York City pitch after my serious knee injury. So I was really disappointed not to get that opportunity and prove that I was still capable of playing football league uh, standard. But yeah, I, I ended up seeing the season out at Grimsby and um, we lost in the playoff final to Bristol Rovers in the conference um, at Wembley. And um, I knew I wasn't getting a deal at York. And I'd sort of put all my eggs in one basket as to hopefully earning the deal at Grimsby Town. And um, I then had the call to say that there was no deal at Grimsby either. So um, that was a real long, hard summer, um, yeah. stressful. How did you, How long did it take you to get over a, a, a playoff defeat like that? It was... As, I didn't as, start... as, a, as a player, obviously, you know, the fans will go home, they'll be... Yeah. 
gratuitous. I know that feeling, but you know, yeah. how, how long does it take a player to get over a bad defeat? Well, not a bad defeat, but a defeat. Yeah, I mean, it was the significance and the importance of the game. I think for for Grimsby to return to the football league, they'd been out for a little while, and I'd only I was a class as a lone player, but you could see how important it, it was to the football club and. Um, I didn't start the match. I was I was on the bench, and I ended up coming on uh, about seventy minutes, and then the game went to extra time. So I ended up playing, you know, a, a good proportion of the game, and lost on penalties. And it was tough. Um, it was hard because I thought that I, at the time I thought is this was my best chance of staying in the football league, earn promotion at Grimsby, get a new deal, and. Um, everything's great but then as it turned out we lose and there was no contract offer either so um, yeah the disappointment quickly turned to worry it was a case of my contract was due to run out in three four weeks time and um, it was where's the next paycheck coming from really yeah yeah and what and, and then is that how we ended, how you ended up at Cheltenham yes so again I use the trusty letter technique <laughs> No agent. I mean, I've had spells in my career where I've had agents and they've promised the world and never delivered. So I thought I'm old enough, wise enough to negotiate my own deals. I can hold conversations with directors or managers or, or whatever I need to do. So in the end, I, I've never had I never had an agent. So at this case, it was taking your matters into your own hand again and um, wrote more letters. And Gary Johnson at Cheltenham rang me up and he said, I'm just looking at your letter. <laughs> he said, um, we need a centre-back. Would you come down, play a couple of friendlies and um, we'll see what happens. We'll see if you like it. We'll see if we like you. So it was a trial again. And this time I felt a little, a little bit hard done by. I wasn't a 20-year-old with no football experience this time. I was a, an experienced 30-year-old mm. who'd played a lot of football. But again there was no real other offer. So yeah. um, you, you, you drive down and you do the business and you hope that you, um, you earn a contract. And I did. And I mean, it turned out to be the most successful and best season of my football career. Yeah. So when you go down on a loan like that, um, does the club say, come down and we'll put you up in a hotel? Or do they say, you get yourself down here, son, and sort yourself out? They did. Well, they put me up. They said there's... Um, at Cheltenham Racecourse, they have sort of like little lodges where they put a lot of the players in uh, every now and then. So they said, we'll put you in there for a couple of nights. Um, and they knew of my South Wales sort of um, roots. So they knew my family was just over the bridge there. So yeah. um, moving forward, that's what ended up happening. So once we'd sorted a deal out, it was a case of I was lodging at my mum and dad's again, um, travelling over. Uh, to train at Cheltenham daily and then on the odd day off it was a drive back up to York where my wife was still at our York home right wow so you're covering some miles in those days weren't you oh yes the car had some serious <laughs> mileage put on it <laughs> and if I'd have met you after that first uh, friendly match that you played for Cheltenham would you have said it's gone well I'm, I'm optimistic I'm going to get an offer or you know or was it one of those bad days in the office where things didn't go to plan no I, I played very well I mean, the thing with pre-season friendlies uh, a lot of the time um, the bigger clubs or the football league clubs or the professional clubs play regional local semi-pro or amateur teams so yeah. 
the the teams we played were of lesser standard. Um, so I played well, but um, at the same time, I wasn't really tested, but I did the basics well. I, I spoke well. I made sure the manager was could see my leadership qualities and things like, just things that, you, that you're in control of, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't until we, I think we played, who did we play? We played, um, I think we played Bristol, Bristol Rovers actually. And um, I did well again. And this time you're playing against football league opposition and, um, I think that was a point where he said, yeah, this, this chap's good enough and let's get something sorted. Right. So an offer was made and you said, according to the stats I've read, you, did, you played 67 times for Cheltenham. So again, you were there for a while. Yes. And, I mean, and, that's and, and why, why was that the most successful period of your career? I played every minute of every game um, and we, we were by far the best team in the league. I mean, I... I'd won promotion with York City to the Football League before, but we sort of snuck in the playoffs and we were a bit of a, not a hit or miss team, but we'd have our bad days. Whereas Cheltenham, we, we were so consistent. Um, I was so consistent. I, I, I performed extremely well throughout um, and we thoroughly deserved to win promotion. We broke the 100-point mark. We, um, we were just so organised and I, and I was a big part of that. Everything from the manager's um, attention to detail to the group of players he 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 pulled together. He had a good blend of experience with some real hungry young talent who were keen to to show what they could do. The likes of Jackmans, who'd just been released from Tottenham. We had um, Jack Bartram again released from Spurs. Um, we had a couple of lads who we had a, a loney from Charlton in goal, who's now playing every week for Charlton, and he is brilliant. I mean, I, I'm sure he'll play in the Premier League eventually. So, Gary had a had a real eye for a player, and um, we, yeah, we just all bought into um, the need for promotion because Gary Johnson was extremely honest with um, what needed to be done that year. Charlton Town had just dropped out of the Football League, and um, we all we were all sat in the meeting room, and he said that it's now or never, basically, for the football club, we must get promoted. And I think the senior lads shouldered that responsibility and thrived in it, really. And then it allowed the young, the young lads just to express themselves. And we, we were so good that year. Um, and I enjoyed every single minute of it. It was hard. It was intense. I mean, Gary Johnson, we'd have meeting after meeting after meeting. It was, it was so different to the style of management that I'd, I'd ever played before. Um, some managers, they do their bits on the training pitch. That's it. See you tomorrow. Whereas we had a full-time analyst. We'd, um, we'd get given clips of our own performance. We'd get clips of our opposition. So we'd know exactly who we were up against. We'd have meetings daily as to how we can improve, what to expect from opposition. The attention to detail for a national league club at the time was incredible. Mm. And that's why I say we, we thoroughly deserve to, um, to earn our promotion. And when you look back on your career now, would you say that is, that is the way managers should manage? I think um, I think it's foolish not to um, be prepared and to give your players um, the ammunition, if you like, to um, to go out there and, and know what to expect. I think there there can be an argument where players can get overloaded and overwhelmed, um, but at the same time, I think you're not really doing your job properly if um, if you're not thinking of you know how we can nullify the opposition or 
improve areas in where we can exploit, if you like. Mm. And so, but you end up ultimately back at York. How did that move come, come about? So again, I mean, hugely successful gear at Cheltenham, promoted back to the Football League, um, signed a new contract at Cheltenham and um, really excited to, to carry on doing what we were doing. And we had a bit of a sticky start. I think um, we were hoping, we didn't start too well. I mean, we, I was playing, felt I was doing okay but we we weren't flying high in League Two. We were sort of mid to mid to lower end of League Two, and um, the manager just left me out a few games. Um, brought in some other centre backs, um, and he was honest. He said, "Look, Dan. He said, I know you're a long way from home. He said, I'm not going to stop you from if you want to get back at North. Um, you can. He said, you can stay here, but." I was a long way from from my now home, which is York. My wife was up up here on her, you know, um, and it was it was hard. The travelling was taking its toll, um, and York City were desperate to re-sign me. Gary Mills had rejoined the football club who I'd worked with and won promotion with at York a few yeah. years before, and he was desperate for me. He said, "Dan, I need your help." He's he said, "Look," he said, "I need you to come in and um, just ship up the the back four and." And yeah, I believe that me rejoining, we could um, stop the rot and prevent relegation and um, rejoined in the January and form improved, um, but we failed at the final hurdle. It was, it was getting, and that is, I'd gone from the ecstasy and the high the season before of winning promotion to then the lowest point of my career, which was um, being relegated from the, from the National League. Yeah. And again, how... I mean, fans sometimes, I think, obviously uh, can jab fingers, can't they, at players and say, well, you know, they don't care. But, I mean, you know, do the players care? You know, how, how were the team? I'd imagine after the game they were devastated. But how, 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 does, that, how does that ripple effect? You know, how long does it run for? A long time, actually. Um, I think um, the fans sort of understood and appreciated our efforts. I think um, they've been a change of manager and, Mills had sort of come back to the football club and he tried to sort of not sort the mess out, but they've been such a huge turnover of players. Um, previous manager had sort of gone down a route where he was trying to bring in lots of young, talented footballers and in the hope that they'd perform well and with the idea of maybe selling them on if and make York City some money in the in the, you know along the way. But um didn't quite happen and it, it turned out that York then were in a bit of a dogfight. So I think fans understood that the players who'd come to the football club to try and save or prevent the relegation, I think they they felt for us. I think they could see that we'd give it a good shot and I think we were showing top six or top eight form from January. But it just wasn't quite enough to prevent the relegation. So um, I think fans were understanding at the, at the same time they were extremely upset. There was some anger as York City were now in regional football, which, I mean, the, the club the size of York City should should never be in regional football. And um, they still, and that's where York are now. And it's it's so hard to to prevent that, that slippery slope and to turn and to change direction. And um, as it's been proven, because that was four years ago now and, and York is still in, in that league. So it's um, it was hard. And the worst thing about that feeling and that, 
that huge disappointment and guilt and um, that you've sort of played your part in, in a team that's been relegated is that in three weeks' time, we were in the FA Trophy final at Wembley. So we'd, we'd had the disappointment of this relegation, but then knowing that we'd earned the right to play again at Wembley for, to try and beat Macclesfield in the trophy. So it was, it was hard. We had the manager just sent us all away. He said, go and have 10 days off. He said, just go and forget about it. Try and get your heads right, and then we'll come back and enjoy. And he said, we will enjoy it because we've earned the right to go to Wembley. And, you know, not many people get the chance to play at Wembley. So let's not be dismissive and um, and just think, oh, well, we have to do this. So And we did. We, we came back and we enjoyed training, like the build-up to the game. And, um, yeah, we ended up beating Macclesfield. Right. And 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 how did how did that feel? You know how how was that feeling that day? I felt I felt a bit empty. Um, I mean, I, this wasn't my first time I played at Wembley, so maybe the buzz wasn't quite as strong as some. I mean, to some, it was their probably one and only chance to play there. Um, I'd had that feeling before, so um, I mean, it was an it was great. We'd but sitting in our dressing room then. After, um, I think reality kicked in knowing that um, York City were now in the National League North and um, I felt responsible, I felt partly responsible, I was part of the team and I was keen to try and put it right so I, I committed my future if York wanted me again, I, I was fully on board to, to try and get York back up so I did early on and, um, and yeah and then we go again they say. And they, uh, and just before we, we finish on, on the career, just tell me about half-time team talks. I, I help coach an under-16s football team. I sometimes wonder if anybody's listening to me at half-time. How, you know, do, does the half-time team talk make a massive difference to you guys? It, it can do. I think um, it depends on how the games go in. I think if um, we've, got, we've played, I've been part of football matches where things haven't gone quite you know, as well as we'd hoped in the first half and half time is an opportunity to sit down and sort things out. I think sometimes you can sit there and feel as though the manager's getting the wrong end of the stick or not necessarily the wrong end of the stick, but feel as though he's barking up the wrong tree where um you it's especially towards the latter end of my career where you're a bit more experienced and you've seen how how players react to certain talks or to certain rants or to things getting thrown around in the dressing in the dressing room, and um, so yeah, like you, you sort of like you're almost analysing and putting yourself in their position as to what you would say in this in this scenario, whether you do performing well or the team not performing well. Um, towards the end of my career, that's that's sort of how my mind was working anyway. And you think the arm around the shoulders better than the ranting shouting? Routine. I think it's not that I do the latter, but uh, <laughs> I've yeah. always been one to. I'd rather have a quiet word just to say, "Look, you know, you can do better than this." Like, buck your ideas up and get out there and show me how good a player you are. Instead of someone spit, shouting and screaming and spitting in your face, saying, "What the hell are you doing?" And yeah. I'm gonna, you're gonna get dragged in five minutes if you don't do this. I mean, everyone reacts differently, and there are some people who react well to that um, and I go back to what I said earlier it, a good man manager knows who needs what um, yeah. but I think it is important for a manager to show 
that he has a side to him. I think sometimes fear is needed when you've got a group of 20-odd blokes in a dressing room. I think, I think players need to know that they won't be taken for a ride, if you like. Um, yeah. So I think there's a time and a place for it. But I think if, if you're doing it every Saturday, every Tuesday night, it, it wears thin, really. Yeah, yeah well, it will wear you out, actually. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. So your career came to an unexpected halt, really, 5th of February 2019, by my records. So you guys are playing Hereford. And from what I heard at that over in Manchester that day, it, it sounded like you were, I think you received an elbow, was it, to the head. But you're at the, you know, probably not the heaviest impact you've ever had. But just talk us through what happened and what was the immediate aftermath. Yeah, so like you said, it was a real innocuous blow, really. Um, being a centre-back, I've bumped my head a fair few times in my career. And this one, it was sort of a, a flailing arm. It, it wasn't intentional. He'd, I think the the centre-forward had just tried to put me off more than anything. And he, he just caught the, my temple with um, his forearm. Um, and at the time, I thought not too much of it. Um quickly was assessed I, I was responsive to the physio I could I answered all those questions and I, I, I passed the initial sort of uh, protocol if you like so returned to play and then very very quickly my condition deteriorated so it was within a click of a finger I started to see double I felt sick um, and I was really uneasy on my feet and the game is still going so it was just before half time, so the, the whistle came at the right time for, for me. I didn't really have to do anything. The, the ball was at the end of the pitch. and So, yeah, I stumbled back into the dressing room and I knew I was in a bad way, really bad way. This was something I hadn't experienced before. So I quickly told the medic that I wasn't right and um, it turned out that I had a severe concussion. I mean, at the time, it was... I think everybody thought it wasn't too bad um, because... I was able to carry on. And then since, um, during the time I've had to sort of do a lot of research and since I've retired, um, I've learned a lot about the delayed onset of concussion and the dangers that that can bring. So yeah, and then all my symptoms just hugely deteriorated and that night, no sleep, severe headaches, migraines, um, sensitivity to light. I didn't get out of bed pretty much for four or five days. Um, and sorry, did you go to hospital at all after the match? So or? the doctor, so there was uh, the physio, then there's a club doctor who's sat in the stand. So I, I then get assessed by the doctor while in my kit in the dressing room while the game's going on in the second half. And we do more tests. It's, it's just a series of questions, really, um, mm. to determine how how severe my my bump is um there was no bleed i wasn't bleeding from the ear so the doctor actually said there was no need for me to go to hospital um they said oh, they said i can't drive so i needed to ring my wife um i needed to leave the car there and she needed to come and get us to get us home she took one look at me and said we're going to hospital because <laughs> and i think i think for Emma's sort of peace of mind really as well I think she didn't really want to shoulder that responsibility and have the worry um, of not knowing what could happen so 
Um, yeah, we, we headed to hospital and they basically reiterated what everything the doctor said. They said, there's nothing really we can do. You just need to monitor it and keep an eye on it. So, and that's what we did. It was just a case of um, just rest. And um, I, I literally couldn't, I, I was getting up to eat, going back to sleep, opening my eyes was giving me a severe headache. So, um, and then I started to get really worried because the normal thing is in a week you can have your rest and then you, you're back fit to play if you like. And when 10 days, two weeks goes by and you're still nowhere near um, improving, um, that's when I knew that something was really wrong. Mm. So how do you, how did you, how did you reach a point where a decision was made that there's no more of that? So I, um, I was getting extremely frustrated of the lack of progress. So then I sort of pushed the club doctor for um, a scan. I mean, the big difference between Premier League and non-league or League Two or whatever is scans cost money. Um, so I think initially it was just, hope, I think football club were hoping that I'd be fine. Um, yeah. But as there was, the improvement was slow, um, I pushed for a scan. I said, I need, to, I need to find out what's going on. I need to... For my peace of mind, I need, I need to make sure there's nothing more sincere, insincere there. So, um, yeah, so we went for, I went for a CT scan at York Hospital and um, everything came back looking normal. And so that was a, a relief. Um, mm-hmm. But then two weeks, three weeks, four weeks go by again and I'm still not seeing progress. So then I'm... I'm having conversations with the, the club doctor about seeing a specialist because um, I'm, I'm worried about my health now. I mean, never mind getting back to play football to try and earn, you know, a living. Really? It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's more about I need to make sure that I'm okay. And this, but, and this was still headaches, was it? And double vision? What was, what was, what so was the, the double vision had, had eased. It was just chronic headaches right. and, and exhaustion. Exhaust, and, and I still struggle a bit with tiredness now. Um, exhaustion was the biggest um, symptom. Um, I could I could go for a walk, twenty minute walk, come back in, and I'd feel as though my arms and my legs would feel like sandbags. So right. drained. Um, so I've gone from being so physically fit to to the other end of the spectrum, really. So um, I, I was starting to get a bit worried, and um, that's when I saw the neurologist. Um, concussion expert actually so i was able to see the best down in birmingham and um he dealt with um lots of rugby players lee halfpenny who struggled with a real bad concussion himself the welsh international and um i did more tests and again he just reaffirmed that you have you still got concussion basically and your your brain is still suffering um and the di- and the the cure for it or the diagnosis um, is just time. That's all they said was time, and I didn't have time. <laughs> no. um, I was thirty four, out of contract, so I sort of made the decision that I cannot put my health at risk. So um, it was a case of making sure that health came first, and um, it was time to start thinking about my f- my future outside of football. And had you, uh, I mean, obviously you've, you've done a degree. Did you do your degree whilst you were playing or did you yes. do your degree since? No, you did no, it no. so um, I did it, um, it was all distance learning. It was all done through um, Manchester Metropolitan University. So um, they teamed up with the PFA um, who help footballers study and 
prepare as best as they can for life after football. So um, it takes a bit longer as it's all distance learning. So it it um, it it took me five years. So it was it was a it was a long slog, but um, it was something I was re- I'm so pleased that I did. Yeah. Um, and to get that qualification at the end of it, yeah, it's it's great knowing that I've I've now got a degree and I didn't have to start again, if you like, when when my career came to an end. And, and did many of your colleagues in those various teams were, did they do that? Did they, I mean, I appreciate the PFA were probably championing it to some degree. Um, did many of your colleagues do a degree? No, I mean, going back, I mean, I started mine when I was twenty-one, so. At the time, I was one of the first. Um, Manchester Mets had only just put on this course um, for distance learning um, footballers and other people who wanted to do it alongside their careers. Um, so that it wasn't just footballers doing it. Um, but then as I've had my career in football, there's, I've definitely seen a, um, a surge in people understand, well, footballers understanding the need to um, educate and be prepared. Um, so in my latter years, um, very common to hear people studying or going to night school or, you know, on away trips with their head in a laptop doing some, you know, some essay or... So, yeah, um, it was... I think it was accepted. I think at the start, I think people thought, well, are you a footballer or you're not? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And they questioned your desire to play football, which I feel is appalling. I mean, just because I, I wanted to study, it didn't make me want to win a game of football any less. You know, yeah. it was, um, yeah, just real, real questionable attitude. Yeah, well, well, well done for, for, for getting it. So talk to me about head injury protocols, because certainly my recollection from our conversation in Manchester was about, you know, where football sits in terms of other sports with head injury protocols. You know, I, you know, I'm a spectator of football. I see people get injured and you, and you think, well, it looks all right. Come on, mate, get on with it. You know, I mean, it is, you know, what, what, what can change to make things better from your perspective? Daniel? I think going back to the conference we met and um, I was on a panel with um, uh, the chief exec of the RFL, the rugby, um, rugby league. Um, and, the the measures and protocols they have in place, I think, is um, something that I think football could definitely learn from. I think I think people need to understand the severity, and I think they are slowly understanding the, the how serious a head injury can be. And the likes of rugby union, cricket, NFL, all these all these sports really do protect player welfare, and I think. That's the thing that I've, I think, I've always been aware that football didn't do it, but having experienced it now firsthand and gone through what I've gone through, um, it's why I'm trying to speak to as many people as possible about my story to try and make a change because I think it's vitally important that you can't play Russian roulette really with people's um, livelihoods, lives, or, I mean, that might sound a bit over the top, but... um, I was told if I'd had a second blow to my head in the state I was in when I returned to the field, it could have been fatal. So that's how um, that's how scary um, it is. So I, I feel as though, I mean, you, you hear stories of well, ah, you know, I've done, I've, 
ex-pros who are now 50, 60, or even in their 40s, you know, I, I played football for 25 years and I, it hasn't done me any harm. I said, well, that's great. You're one of the fortunate ones. I think it's important that just be, we can't have that attitude. And if it happens to one, that's one too many. And um, yeah. we need to make sure that um, player safety is, um, is put first. So in terms of, if we went back in time to that day, what what protocol would have been better? Would it have been an immediate, you know, take you off the pitch for a period of time? And where and where does that leave the club in terms of putting another player on the pitch? At the moment, you can't put a temporary substitute on, can you? No. So and that's, you say that rule needs changing? I think... Um, I think it's vitally important that the player just gets removed from the field of play. I think you see it in, in rugby, NFL, you see it all where a medic can properly and thoroughly assess a player um, without the pressures of management desperate to get up to their full contingent of 11 players or the fans, just opposition fans thinking you're feigning injury, the referee who's getting twitchy. A medic needs to do his job because that that, that worry, he knows better than anyone um, how a player is feeling, um, and in, and to resolve all those issues, I think teams should be allowed to have a temporary substitution. Um, lots of people have rubbished this idea as they've said teams would manipulate it; they'd use it as an advantage. They'd people would start going down, and then they'd bring on a different player. I mean. Yes, there's, it's hard, it is hard to stop that. But then you question their, their ethics about, and, how, and their sportsmanship. And, and I understand that some people's attitude is win at all costs, but um, I don't think you can stop introducing these protocols just because a few may bend the rules. Yeah. So really, it's a, so you'd say the best way were to remove the player even from the field, go to the changing room, perhaps. Yeah, be absolutely, for sure. And, 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 and but allow the team to bring a, a replacement substitute on for, say, 10 minutes if you can come back on. Yeah. But, but would you say there's, there's got to be a 10-minute gap there where somebody's got to stay off the pitch? Or, or could they come back? Because, I mean, again, wouldn't they just bundle you down to the... And this sounds terrible, but bundle you down to the changing room, give you the... A modest check over, then bundle you back out again. Or do you think there should be a set time that they have to stay off? Um, I think I think there needs to be some parameter to. I mean, I think we. I'm no I'm no doctor. I'm no medical expert. But I think I think in other sports, I think ten or twelve minutes is seemed as an adequate amount of time. I mean, I think I've spoken to a few who question actually the. What's the word I'm looking for? How, how how good the actual protocol is in rugby? I mean, I think mm. there's been some who who still think that the player sort of makes up the mind of the medic and says, "Well, I've had my ten minutes. I'm going on now, no matter what." Um, I think I have heard a few people say that, but um, yeah, I think I think it just needs to be a ten minute window, in in my opinion, where um, where players are given proper medical attention because I, I do feel as though I mean and going back to that night in February where I picked up my knock the physiotherapist did his job not once have I questioned my care by the club doctor or or medics it's they were following the rules and it was because these rules weren't strict and thorough and stringent enough 
that I could have picked up a more serious um, injury and heaven forbid um, fatal. So um, yeah, um, improvements. I mean, and and in my opinion, they're so simple. They're so easy to be made. Um, mm. But I, I understand that um, all the cynics out there really are worried about turning football away from you know the um, the the pure game it is. But VAR is in now, so if VAR yeah, is in... Sure. I mean, yeah, do you think yeah. there's... Is there any movement within the FA heading in this direction or are you, do you feel like you're a lone voice at the moment? I've tried to speak to as many people as possible. I think I have lost a bit of traction as time's gone on. Um, I think, obviously, they, they, there's been a few more high-profile cases who, which, which I think more people will stand up and listen Um I spoke about Jan Batongan's um, bump because it happened not too long after mine in the Champions League semi-final where the eyes of the world were watching. And and in the end, that sort of just got brushed over. And I think they said he didn't have a concussion, so it was absolutely fine in the end. But I think he was fortunate he wasn't concussed more than, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm trying my best to speak to the likes of yourself and get it out there and... Um, I've spoken to a couple of national newspapers and I won't stop until change happens. I mean, I'll, I'll be more than happy to share my story and um, be a case study, if you like. Yes. Well, I hope this, well, I hope this helps your cause, Daniel. Um, There's a nice link there to a couple of questions we've had on Twitter. Um, Ernest Wilson's have asked the question, Hi, Chris, please ask Daniel, at what age does he think kids should be encouraged to head the ball and should a lighter football be used up to certain age groups? to enable heading at an earlier age? And that's Stuart, sorry. I think that's a, it's a, fair, it's a very good question, actually. And going back to my childhood, I, I, I was good at heading footballs, whether it was because I was brave or... And in the end, it, it turned me into a centre-back. Um, I was the sort of child who wasn't afraid to head a ball, where lots who were a bit younger are. So, um, But going, I think training balls could 100% a thing i think you can still learn correct technique timing um and then i mean in my career i, I dread to think how many footballs i've actually never mind on a match day if in in training daily center backs would go 20 minutes at the end of, of most sessions you'd say right go and do your bits and bobs so center forwards would practice a bit of finishing wide men would work on their their crossing centre halves heading footballs and honest honestly i mean the amount at least 30 40 every session um that's not to mention the balls you've headed during the normal session and then all the uh, all the times you're heading footballs in in games so and going and i know i said earlier on about you know most players most ex professionals not even professionals will go through life and they'll be okay after football, but we've seen the studies, you know, um, I think it was Dr. Stewart up in Scotland with, and his dementia and Alzheimer's study and the real link to heading of footballs. Yes, this was back in the day where footballs were a lot heavier, but mm. there's a link. And why we know so much more we, we, through technology and all these studies to just be dismissive of it and just to say, well, oh, I was fine in my day. I just think yeah. that's such a, such a... Well, it's just old-fashioned, isn't it? It's, it's so old-fashioned, Chris. It's, yeah. And I just, I question 
what sort of response is that? And to think of, I mean, to protect your children and your children's children, all these people who want to play sport. And I'm, I'm not one to put off people. I mean, I've been, I've had so much pleasure from playing sports through my childhood. I've been fortunate to earn a living from it. And I not for one second, am I trying to stop people from playing professional sport and football? But I think if we, with all this information we know, it'd be foolish not to just put protocols in place and to protect um, children, adolescents, adults as they go through their career. I'm going to finish with this question. This is, this is from uh, uh, somebody, who, the Y-Front fanzine. You might know yeah, them. I do. It says, could, could you ask Dan, can he describe his feelings during the famous Wembley twice-in-a-week wins? A week I will never, ever forget. I mean, to play at Wembley twice in seven days, I think it was eight days, um, incredible. I mean, we'd, we'd, um, we'd beaten Newport in the FA Trophy first time round, and that was sort of, not a trial run, but the big one was the playoff final. So I think that set us up nicely. Um, all the sort of um, looking around Wembley, doing the tour, looking at the dressing rooms, all that was done and dusted the week before. And then we went down to play Luton. And um, yeah, I mean, to finally get York City back into the Football League and to play in the Football League myself, it, it was a dream that I'd always wanted to do. Um, yeah, the best week of my football career by far. And when you've, when you've won that game, did you, do you stay down in London or did you come home that night to York and did you go out partying like mad or did you just go yeah, and we, no, no, we, um, we all came back up to York and a yeah, big night out. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we had a little, um, a little celebratory trip to, um, to Benidorm. All the <laughs> paid for by Ooh. the football club. Oh, um, yeah. I know. No, but honestly, it, it was brilliant. And um, staff, chairman went. Um, it was just, it was great. Three, I think it was three days. Um, and... Yeah, such a fantastic... I mean, I don't drink, and I, I still had the best time. It was just so good to just to enjoy and celebrate what we'd what we just achieved, really, and uh, to look forward to then getting into the Football League. Um, it, it was a tinge of... Along the way, we knew that not everybody who was on that trip were going to be offered contracts. So it was, it was difficult, but um, the core of the group stayed on, and um, yeah... Fantastic feeling. Well, thank you, uh, Y-Front fanzine, for that. Uh, we'll finish on that high then, Daniel. Um, listen, congratulations on a, a career. Uh, whilst it was curtailed earlier than you wanted, it, it's, a, it's a great career for a, a professional football over 400 games, representing those clubs. I've only read nice things on social media about you, and I, and I liked you when I saw you in Manchester, and I like what you said, and I like the cause that you've got. So I hope in some way that this podcast helps that, Daniel, and we'll uh, circulate it through all our channels but uh, thanks for your time today thank you very much Chris thanks for the platform well I really enjoyed that chat with Daniel I mean uh, as I say I met him over in Manchester last year I just might have time to give him a card um, it was quite an interesting sports conference not least of all because of Daniel's comments but even more uh, even more memorable was the moment when the representative from FIFA announced that they were trying to introduce rules to limit the amount of money that an agent can earn well, you should have seen the agent representative's face then. But it was quite a day. So uh, our paths have crossed and I'm, I'm grateful for that.
I hope you enjoy the podcast. I hope you enjoy the questions I was asking about behind the scenes. And if you'd like to leave a review, then that's terrific. Um, and thanks again for listening. Share this podcast with whoever you like. But uh, we'll be doing some more, again, mainly relating to sport, but not always. So I'm going to leave you with our new signature new music. I hope you like it. Uh, and if you do, let me know. Uh, but I'll say thank you again to Daniel and thanks to you for listening. So thank you. Thank you.